That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The galvanizing effect of that friendship is what made Linda take extraordinary risks in pursuing Christine's murderer when she ends up dead on campus. Welcome to Stand Up, Speak Up, a podcast dedicated to spreading awareness about issues that usually get swept under the rug. Brought to you by Stand Up, Speak Up Fashion, where a portion of every sale supports 3,000 acts of kindness. Visit StandUpSpeakUpFashion.com. Law enforcement. They put their lives on the line to protect us. We trust their abilities to do the absolute best job keeping communities safe, conducting investigations, and bringing criminals to justice. But what about when they don't live up to their duty? When ineffective law enforcement leads to botched investigations, betraying trust of the public, and letting murderers run free. Even through no fault of their own, due to red tape or lack of resources, police may sometimes have their hands tied around solving a case, when the answers are, in fact, out there. In our most recent series, Finding Shelley DeRoche, Stand Up Speak Up seemed to find out a lot more about the story than police could have or would have. But this was not an isolated case, whether in Canada, the United States, or anywhere else in the world. Today, Carla speaks with Dr. Michael Arnfield, professor and criminologist at Western University, retired police officer, director of the Murder Accountability Project in Washington, D.C., and author. In his latest book, Mad City, Dr. Arnfield presents several true story death cases of female students at the University of Wisconsin in the 60s and 70s, whose killers have never been charged, even when it seems proper evidence does exist. In this episode, we'll focus on the murder of Christine Rothschild, allegedly by a stalker named Jorgensen. After realizing the police were seemingly of no help, the main character, Linda, set out on a journey to identify the real killer, and her investigation appears to prove much more useful than anything done by police. I read it, and the first thing I thought was, wow, this is a a story of someone that spent their whole life trying to not just solve the murder of her close friend, but actually try to monitor the guy that had murdered her to try to just know his whereabouts and almost track him, which really should have been the police's job. In addition to discussing the book, Mike shed some light on whether or not social media has changed things in terms of creating and investigating stalkers and talks about the Murder Accountability Project, which aims to accurately account for unsolved homicides in the United States, uncovering patterns, and holding police departments accountable for poor performance. So Mad City and Mad Town are pseudonyms for Madison, Wisconsin, and and they sort of picked up speed in the 1970s. Uh, And there's some question about who coined the names, but they're sort of affectionately known. It's a bit of an unhinged sort of you know, free-spirited city and, and actually a model of civic governance on the side. And the University of Wisconsin at Madison is sort of a very well-respected institution and also, ironically, was proclaimed by the Princeton Review 
in 2016 as America's top party school. But once upon a time, it was a place where there were dark secrets that few people really wanted to acknowledge. There's a lot of cities like that. And at the Murder Accountability Project, I mean, we track cities that have serial killer epidemics. And some are well-known, like Chicago and Detroit, and some are lesser known. But it was Linda as the protagonist of this book when I first met her in 2011 that made me realize that she was why this book needed to be written. And her odyssey, her 40-year quest, her promise to her friend who was the first victim in a series of murders in that city and on that campus, I mean, that was the real story. Any true crime writer could have cobbled together a story about Madison, and some have tried before, but the real subtext here is is Linda's quest and this this dark 40-year journey across America and back chasing the guy she knows killed her best friend when they were freshmen at UW-Madison in 1968. Although in the book you say that they were almost soul sisters and that they had a very close bond, but in reality they'd only met at university and her friends and family probably wouldn't have thought that they were such close friends. So, I mean, they were probably, I would think, very surprised that Linda dedicated her whole life to catching Christine's killer and making sure that he was brought to justice. I mean, anyone who's been to college or university and has been in her shoes will will find you know great sort of resonance with this story. I mean, she arrives at UW-Madison as a working-class Milwaukee girl straight out of a Catholic, essentially, boarding school in the summer, late summer of 67, summer of love, and we're preparing, America's preparing to enter what is an absolutely tumultuous year, 1968. And what happens is she is a very sort of, I don't want to say timid, but certainly a, a bookish down-to-earth girl on a campus that is in the eye of the storm in terms of social upheaval, in terms of Vietnam riots, in terms of counterculture, in terms of what eventually turns out to be domestic terrorism. And these radical groups are springing up. And amidst this mayhem, she meets another girl, very similar in constitution, but from worlds away, a very moneyed, blue-blooded, but very intellectual girl named Christine Rothschild from the Edgewater section of Chicago, which if you know, Chicago is, is a very tony area, sort of near Wrigley Field in the Northeast. And they came from worlds apart, but they found each other as people who had something in common, two people who had mutual interests in, again, a world that seemed upside down in, in the late summer of 67 and on into 68. And they did eventually become best friends and, uh, in effect, surrogate sisters, as I mentioned in the book. The galvanizing effect of that friendship is what made Linda take extraordinary risks, risks no cop would take at that time in pursuing Christine's murder or when she ends up dead on campus in May of 68. Her need to see justice, her need to see uh, Christine's memory live on and, and her death not be in vain and, and sort of more ethereal philosophical ideas about justice and karma. Eventually, the system runs roughshod over her and dismisses her and uh, misuses her. And she's betrayed by people who are supposed to be in the public trust from the university administration to city administration to police administrations, plural, in the various cities that this guy ends up in, where they don't listen to her. And more people died as a result. 
it's tough to explain unless you've seen it in action, unless you've seen the way the system and people within that system and people upholding that system really do not care. And at the end of the day, she realized she was the only one who cared. And that became her, her, the focus of her life. If we go back to the challenges she faced, how many of them do you think are unique to that time period? And which ones do you think would be relevant to today? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, if this were to unfold today, what advantages or disadvantages would someone like Linda have? So first of all, imagine during that period, I mean, she begins really that summer as an intern at the Milwaukee Sentinel newspaper, learning the tricks of the trade as an investigative journalist and how to mine microfiche data and how to file requests for information on service records and birth certificates and death certificates. And she really sort of cuts her teeth as a civilian investigator that same summer. And the investigation begins right there and then. But there is, you're right, no internet. There's no technology. There's no, I mean, as we know it now, there's no way to close space and time as quickly as we can now. So, I mean, she's really got a a Rand McNally road atlas, a hunch, some newspaper colleagues doing favors for her running Associated Press checks on images and on names. And she's got an old car. It's about as rudimentary and old school as you can get. And was she dismissed and treated in cavalier fashion because she was, quote unquote, just a civilian and in particular, just a woman? Absolutely. And this is talked about in the book. Her friend, Christine, and this is how Linda knows who this was. And I should stress the subsequent murders in Madison were not the same killer as much as the police wanted it to be the same boogeyman. They were just calling the capital city killer. The reality is Christine's killer as the first killer in town during that period fled immediately thereafter and Linda chased him and then the copycats moved in. But Christine knew who it was and Linda knew who her killer was because he had been stalking her for some time on campus and at her dorm room. And she went to, Christine went to the campus police and said, days before her death, and said, listen, I'm being stalked. This is who he is. This is his MO. And their response was, uh, well, you can get a good deal on a rape whistle at uh, the student union. No report. And the onus essentially was on her by a rape whistle in case he does attack, then we'll, we'll hear you. And then that might save your life. I mean, that was, that was the attitude at the time. Very dismissive, very cavalier. I mean, very off, just an offhand remark like that was, I think, par for the course. And if you think about the greater context, at the same time, there's a hundred people burning their draft cards. There is six or seven radical groups on campus plotting actual bombing attacks at the university. There are five or six, as we now know, other serial sex offenders, including sexual serial murderers, who moved in knowing that this was a great place to hide in plain sight because the cops and everyone else and the news media were distracted. The song remains the same today. We see these hyper-partisan groups on campuses. This is really the prime environment for predators to move in undetected. Based on kind of the profile of the murderer, how often would a stalker move into actually raping someone and murdering someone? So we, we, we understand this much better now. And, and this is why I try in the book to provide a balanced approach to the police, the attitude of the police at the time. In part, it was, I think, a symptom of the times and attitudes of sort of those in power generally and, and the way uh, certain groups were 
perceived and, and, and dealt with by them. But they also just didn't have a lot of the training and the knowledge that we have now. We now know, and there's solid research on this, both peer-reviewed academic research as well as uh, work done by the LAPD's Threat Assessment Unit. We understand there's a graduated scale of stalking. And when you deal with stranger obsessional site stalking, so someone who is a stranger to the stalker, and yet the stalker becomes obsessive about tracking their movements and then actually attends sites. So there's non-site stalking and site stalking. So you can be a stranger obsessional stalker, but if you're a non-site stalker, I mean, this is your today, quite frankly, prototypical Facebook creeper. I mean, this is someone who can monitor someone's dating activities, social habits, sort of passively through various technologies. But a site stalker, if you're actually attending where they live, where they work, you're following them to and from places, as I discuss in the book, you're actually engaging now in peeping and prowling and obscene phone call activities. I mean, we now know these are high-risk gateway behaviors and that the next step is an actual attack. And they just didn't at the time. And then that was not symptomatic just of Wisconsin or Madison or the Midwest or even the United States. This was, as I mentioned, in Murder City, a, a a systemic issue across law enforcement and uh, the fact that they just didn't have the training. It was not the same. There's not the same adequacy standards and expectations that there are today. And that's not necessarily to excuse it because they did 40 years later have that training and that technology and they still did nothing about it. So we're not excusing it. We're just trying to put it in some kind of context. It's interesting what you said about cyber stalkers. I guess that's the term for them. How many cyber stalkers do you think are out there right now? Like how much has social media changed? Is it created more stalkers? The classic chicken and egg argument is, I mean, it, it went back to when there was a surge in arrests for child pornography and child luring. And the question was, is the internet creating more of these deviants or are they just getting caught more easily because now we can look for them in one place? One school of thought was, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s and onward, how do you track the movement of a single VHS cassette? How do you track the movement of a cache of old Polaroids that, you know, there is no interchange uh, or exchange location that you could, that can be tracked and people aren't prepared to take these risks and there's no IP addresses and there's no online forums where these people are prepared to present themselves, albeit under, you know, the guise of pseudonyms or what have you. But they're out there. They're, they're outing themselves. But as I argue, along with a forensic psychologist who co-authored a book I've got coming out next year called Social Media and Mental Health, Depression, Predators and Personality Disorders, it's more really more of a textbook, but it's got a, a large crossover appeal to educators and to parents, and I think to just meet users of social media. And we argue vigorously that, in fact, through a process known as technological determinism, I mean, if you go back and you look at the rise of Henry Ford's Model T, the wide affordability of automobiles in turn creates highways, in turn creates suburbs. It completely reshapes human culture. And digital technologies have done the same thing. I think it's too convenient and too simplistic to say, oh, well, this has just allowed us you know, to catch them more efficiently because technology is on our side. Well, really, it's not. Technology is neutral. It's in the hands of the user, what you do with it. And in reality, it's doing favors deviant behavior maladaptive and destructive behavior more than it does, I think, what the architects of the early internet uh, really thought it would in terms of bringing people together and educating people. 
and we've done our best to try to explain it away. But the reality is that technological determinism in this context uh, has brought out new forms of psychosexual dysfunctionality, including the normalization of stalking, the normalization of, as we argue, about a hundred different paraphilias that 10 years ago you would never discuss publicly and now are considered kind of normal behavior. Do you think if social media existed then um, and that they could see all his behavior online, they could have used it more in in, um, catching him sooner? Probably not. Probably not because it's really only the low-hanging fruit that's getting caught now. I mean, as I mentioned in in another book I wrote just last year, Murder in Plain English, where we look at the writings of psychopaths and killers online and all the warning signs that are missed from school shooters to mass murderers and and domestic terrorists, serial killers. Uh, I mean, the best case was a guy named Todd Coleheap in South Carolina, who was a real estate agent who also in his spare time kidnapped young couples, murdered the man, kept the woman as a sex slave until he was bored of her, found a new couple who he could lure to his farm with the promise of daily labor. And he'd kill the old slave and the whole process would start over. And he was actually submitting Amazon reviews of his murder weapons. Uh, He was an Amazon Prime member and submitted verified purchase user reviews of the knives that he used, of the shovels that he used to bury the bodies. I mean, almost as though he was boasting about it as he was begging to be caught. And you can see, I mean, it's, it's surreal. People, other users say they found this review helpful and no one reported it. So, you know, no one thought twice about it. So the reality is the only people getting caught it's either after the fact or it's people who are doing things that and ex- making exchanges that just happen to be the priority of investigative agencies right now. And I don't necessarily need to advertise what those are, but it's uh, people are engaging widely in precursor gateway behaviors using social media and no one, no one's watching, no one's listening and not necessarily that they should, but. We also know that people who should know better when they read it aren't doing anything about it. So I don't think that that would have changed anything if Jorgensen was operating today versus 40, 50 years ago. What made Christine a perfect victim? Like, why do you think he targeted her and he was successful at getting away with it for forever? I mean, his, his whole life, basically. I mean, serial offenders will frequently settle for anybody but there is always a fantasy archetype that they will be drawn to. I mean, everyone has a type. Sexual psychopaths also do. And for whatever reason, she was his type. And the most chilling, I think, part of the book that I bring up repeatedly is when Linda discovers the unpublished manuscript written by Jorgensen's mother that is really a decoder ring for all the crimes he's committed in his life. It's, a, it's thinly veiled as a work of fiction. We call it a roman a clay. So The Devil Wears Prada is one. Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried is one. Uh, Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is a roman a clay as well. These are, are works that read like novels, but are usually biographies or autobiographies, and just the names and dates have been fictionalized. And his own mother wrote a book where the protagonist, that's clearly Jorgensen, her own son, kidnaps a woman named Annabelle and brings her to this remote place. And he, she describes Annabelle very clearly in a way that matches Christine's appearance. And it's chilling because did this actually already happen? Had he killed another girl that looked just like her? Or did his mother know 
something about his preferred type and know that he was capable of this? And did she write this book in order to warn these people to, as a method of catharsis for herself, as a relic that when it was found would somehow incriminate him? We don't know. But I'm confident that he killed a very similar looking woman in California, where he's originally from, for coming to Madison, and that he also killed his own brother as his first as his first victim. And if that sounds unusual, it's actually not for necrophiles, which he clearly was. He's clearly sexually attracted to death. He posed her body. He posed another body. He walked around with Polaroids of a family in South Africa that had been mutilated, probably by him. We know he was there as a missionary doctor in the early 60s. He claimed that it was his handiwork. And we see across the board, whether it's Edmund Kemper or Henry Lee Lucas or Otis Toole or any of the well-known homicidal necrophiles in U.S. history, their first victim is frequently uh, their own family members as a warm-up. And Jorgensen was no different. Why would a mother, she be that scared that she wouldn't want to tell anyone? That's right. That was her only channel to the outside world if something were to happen. I think it was in part a life insurance policy on herself. She put this thing into circulation that if anything happened and people looked close enough at it. And when he left after killing Christine, he left a cop, like when he blew town, he left, I mean, he took what he could in a, in a go bag, but he left a lot of his possessions behind in a room that he was uh, renting as part of his duties with the medical school. And he left behind a copy of the manuscript. And that's how it originally came then to Linda when she went and followed up with his roommate and learned about the other things he was doing, peeping on him, pulled a gun on him, pulled a gun on another doctor in the hospital the same day Christine was killed. And that explains a lot because the question always was, and I don't go into this in too much detail in the book, Christine is found behind a hedgerow outside the physics building, a building that was later blown up by terrorists in 1971, by the way. And there was no drag marks in the ground. And she was terrified of him and knew that he was stalking her. So if he didn't subdue her and drag her behind this hedgerow to conceal her from the rest of the campus, and he killed her right on campus on a Sunday morning. It's, it's uncanny. And then the fact that he pulls a gun later at the hospital confirms that he probably just seized control of the situation by, by pulling a gun on her. And this is frequently overlooked at crime scenes where they'll say, you know, the victim has no, no marks indicative of the fact that they were bound or gagged, and yet they went voluntarily to this location. It suggests multiple suspects, because how would you control a victim without restraints unless you had two or more people? Well, how about one person with a gun? <laughs> I mean, we know that... I'm quoting the latest research about it. I think about 70% of serial murders, including sexual serial murders, involve either planning or use or possession of a firearm. So it's not unreasonable to think even a strangler would, a serial strangler would also carry a gun. And there's no question that that's what uh, Jorgensen did. Could she have negotiated? There is no negotiating with psychopaths. There's one, the, the, the global go-to expert on psychopaths, Dr. Robert Hare, who's actually an alumnus of my university, Western University, and created the standardized test for diagnosing psychopaths, has essentially said in a couple of his books, a psychopath walks into your life when you're not looking and installs themselves there, either at your work or in a relationship. You basically have two choices, destroy them or run like hell, because there is no room for negotiation. But with all this evidence, and you outline the evidence in your, your book and how even a nurse had heard 
Jorkinson claimed that it was a good day to execute a murder. With all that, how did nothing happen? Well, they tried early on. They realized that he was probably, the police realized early on he was probably their guy. And when they realized he skipped town, they followed him. They skipped traced him to New York, where he was holed up in a Manhattan townhouse. And again, they're thinking this guy's from a moneyed family out west. I mean, his father had a library named after him at a university out there, was a very decorated physician himself. He's much older. He was older than the investigating officers. I mean, this, this was also unusual. He was in his mid-40s completing a medical residency in piecemeal fashion that he'd been dabbling at for 10 years. And that was just his cover to move university to university. He'd flunk out or he'd quit and he would move on to the next disruptive counterculture college campus and he would install himself there to, to hide in plain sight and target women. So when the cops found him in New York, they still kind of doubted that, is a guy like this really capable of, of these atrocities? And they gave him the benefit of the doubt, and they should have arrested him right there. They had more than enough probable cause, but they let him book an appointment for a lie detector at one of the NYPD precincts the next day. And sure enough, he didn't show, and they went back, and he was gone again. And from there on, they threw in the towel. And it was only Linda then that hit the road for the next 40 years. And had she not kept on his tail, and he did kill other people, but she was always close enough. And they eventually end up in this game of cat and mouse where they're exchanging postcards and he mails her a copy of the book. And there's a double encryption in there threatening her. Had she not, there were many, many other people would have been killed. I mean, he, he, he essentially moved away from targeting campuses after 1968. We are certain that he then took up work as a doctor at various casinos at West where you need to have a physician on staff. And there's uh, some nurses then that died at these casinos where he happened to be stationed at the time. Or, or in fact, when I say died, I've never been found. So he adjusted his methods and other people I'm satisfied have died at his hand, but not as many as would have had Linda not taken up that mantle. Why did he never kill Linda or terrorize her? Or was he intrigued by that whole thing? Do you think he saw her as a... I think he saw her, yeah, as a foil to his, to the narrative that he was constructing of himself. I and mean, he saw himself as this suave supervillain and he was Moriarty and she was Holmes. And they needed each other. There was, there was a symbiosis there in his twisted mind. And at the same time, she wasn't afraid of him. And psychopaths relish in the ability to, to create fear and to control and to terrorize like any bully does. And how do you treat a bully? You have to walk up and punch him right in the face. And that takes away their power. And she had taken away his power. And by the end of his life, he's just a joke of a man relegated to living with his mother who's terrified of him. She's in her late 80s. He's in his late 60s on into his 70s. And it's a Norman Bates situation, a creepy Norman Bates situation where they're living together in a one bedroom uh, apartment. And it's just um, and then that's sort of where the story ends when my students find him and conduct an interview with him, which I did not know they were doing at the time. And I would have never in a million years approved. But they had met Linda on social media and sort of picked up where she left off and were also inspired by her. Coming up, Mike talks about the Murder Accountability Project, which he hopes will reduce a number of situations like Christine's by holding police departments accountable and uncovering patterns. That's next on Stand Up, Speak Up. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. 
My name is Matt Kundle, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. The key to change is action. That's why at Stand Up Speak Up Fashion, our mission is to raise awareness on issues that affect teens and young people today. Each unique design highlights social justice and human rights topics, from homelessness and drug abuse to mental health and bullying. Show the world what you stand for with Stand Up Speak Up Fashion. A portion of every sale goes to support 3,000 acts of kindness. Read more and browse our collections at StandUpSpeakUpFashion.com. You and I have talked about this quite a bit and, and my whole, I guess, education after doing the Shelley series was that I feel like anyone can get away with murder, which seems like such a scary thing to say out loud. Let me give you some examples. If you go to murderdata.org, that's the landing page for the Murder Accountability Project. I'm a one of uh, several directors. We're all ex-law enforcement or uh, noted criminologists or data architects. And we have built the most comprehensive murder database in the world. There is about 750,000 murders on there going back to 1965, including about 230,000 unsolved murders since 1980 alone. That's more deaths in America from criminal homicide than all of the casualties or killed in action casualties of all the United States Armed Forces in every conflict since World War II, since 1980 alone. And you can search by year, you can search by city, by county, by state, by type of victim, by type of weapon, by cause of death, or more recently, you can just browse now using our serial offender algorithm by the entire nation and see what cities have serial killers currently active in them as of right now. And you can see the number is about 10 times what the FBI had previously estimated. And when you look at the cities where they are the most prolific, and one of the patterns we identified was 60 women murdered in Cleveland, most of the victims deposited in vacant houses, and they had no idea this, and we know it's a single offender, they had no idea that this guy was operating in the city because he was sprinkling these murders in among the dozens and dozens of other unsolved murders every year. And they only have 13 homicide detectors for that entire city with hundreds of homicides a year. Woefully inadequate. So killers know how to exploit these tactical and logistical shortcomings of the police. They know how to use forensic countermeasures. They know how to time their murders, both in terms of uh, when they occur, month, year, season, day of the week, but also in terms of how to space them geographically so that different detectives in different divisions get the cases and knowing that that information remains siloed and that they'll never communicate. And that's why we created this program to put all these murders in one place at one time, consolidate 230,000 unsolved murders so that you can see where these offenders are right now. And I think your average person would be terrified it is pretty, I mean, I'm on it right now. It's pretty terrifying, but it looks like the average solve rate is like 27, 28%, would you say? 
the national average that we call it the clearance rate, not the solved rate, because it doesn't necessarily mean that that person gets arrested and convicted in the case is officially solved the case for a case to be cleared. So coded in gray versus red on our site is uh, that a suspect has been identified and arrested uh, or that there's a warrant out and that they remain the prime suspect uh, with a, an arrest pending. In other words, the case, they think they know who did it. That's a clearance. That doesn't necessarily mean solved. The clearance rate for the last few years nationally has hovered around 66%. Now that said, there are cities, and I'm not going to advertise them because our concern is that killers are using the site to find the best cities to set up shop. I was just about to say that because I'm looking right here and I'm thinking, you know what, I'm going to go hang out in um, in Floyd or I'm going to go hang out here in Polk. Yeah, there's some, there's sizable cities where only one in 10 murders is solved. There are cities you have heard of and your listeners are traveling to for business or for pleasure where if they get clipped there tomorrow, the chances of that person being caught are about nine or 10%. I mean, the data analytics are incredible. Like the victim's race, it's a higher percentage of white and then black and a higher percentage of male. Males overwhelmingly, and this this is a misconception that I mean, women are statistically predisposed to being victims of murder. Men overwhelmingly are predisposed to victims being victims of murder. But the reality is that the cases involving females are frequently serial offender cases. That doesn't rule out that men are also victims of serial offenders. But again, these are understudied and misunderstood patterns that our data is now revealing. Do you think that this data holds still for Canada and Australia would be the same patterns? I've got a way to build this in Canada. They've done their best. I mean, Canada didn't become the least productive and underachieving of all uh, G7 nations by accident. They had to work very hard to, to get that status, and they're not going to give it up. And that includes not not cooperating with with cutting-edge ventures like this. So they've tried to not give us this data under the auspices of privacy and that the requests are too onerous, but there is a backdoor method that will allow us to actually to build an even more comprehensive version of this for Canada. And there'll be far fewer homicides, which should actually allow these clusters and the analytics to reveal very obvious patterns in very obvious locations that the police simply cannot ignore any longer. I find it so interesting that the females are basically 23% of total cases. Well, depends on what type of female. Or we break them down by every demographic variable imaginable. So, But yet, overall, that may be right. I'm not looking at it right now, but I can tell you 85 to 90% of all homicides are males. And, but there's quite a huge unknown. So it's males killing males. and So... One problem we've encountered is we have forced agencies that have not otherwise been reporting this data to the FBI, and we actually had to sue the Illinois State Police because they refused to give it to us, and we won a judgment against them in 2016, so they turned over all their murders reluctantly, and of course, by no one's surprise, they have the lowest clearance rate of all states. Not only that, about 1,800 murders are still missing. Medical examiners across Illinois have reported, and this happened again last year in, in various states, more murders to the Justice Department than the police departments within that state did, which means that the medical examiners are getting bodies, processing them, listing causes of deaths in criminal homicides and forwarding on that information. Well, that should come from two locations when it gets to the federal government, the medical examiner and the police department leading the investigation. But the police departments are frequently holding back that data. So we're now 
in battles with various cities to get that. We haven't seen statewide lack of compliance the way we did in Illinois, but some cities are saying, you know, we don't want this this being made public. And our response is, well, why not? And that's part of the problem. <laughs> if you don't want it to be known that you solve one of every 10 cases, the taxpayers, the visitors to your city need to know that. And the victims who think that you're actively investigating those cases, victims' families who think you're actively investigating those cases also need to know that. So there are no more secrets. We have sort of pulled down the curtain and the police, I mean, some don't like it, but I just got back from a cold case investigators conference in Annapolis. The LAPD was there, the NYPD was there, the FBI was there, state police, Penn State Police, Maryland State Police, Texas Rangers. They all said this is the Uber of homicide investigation. This is the most disruptive piece of innovation in criminal investigations since DNA. This will change the game. Which police forces have you come across that you feel are, are very well run and, and you think do a great job? Uh, Nashville Metro Police, for sure, is for a large U.S. city among the best. And they are actually the focus of my third book in this series, Monster City, which will be out for summer of 2018, uh, about a series of serial murders in Nashville coinciding with the rise of new country music in the mid-90s. Beyond that, the most improved, and a murder accountability project we advertise, the most improved to follow these, these, these principles. And Santa Ana, California went from among the worst in terms of clearance to the top in clearance in the U.S., in three years. They got a new chief. They shuffled the deck in terms of who was in charge of different units, including homicide, and they began adopting some of these principles. And they drastically started solving their cases and drastically uh, reduced the number of murders as a result. A high clearance rate is correlated with improved public safety. The more cases you solve, the fewer murderers there are on the street the less inclined someone is to commit a murder if the likelihood of their being caught is, is higher. It's, it's, it's basic arithmetic. To view the Murder Accountability Project for yourself, visit murderdata.org. We'll also include the link in our podcast show notes at standupspeakupblog.com, along with the link to buy Mike's new book, Mad City. Don't go anywhere. For our bonus content today, more of Carla's conversation with Dr. Arnfield as he talks about policing in Canada specifically, how Canadian police stack up against the U.S., how we can push for change, and why he hasn't started a Canadian version of the Murder Accountability Project.
Thanks for listening. That was Eric Eckhart and The One. Now for your bonus content. This episode focused mainly on the United States, but Canada shares many of the same issues. Listen as Mike and Carla discuss Canadian policing specifically. For Canadian provinces, which province do you think is the most progressive versus the ones that are lagging behind? I'd say they're all generally lagging. Uh, the, the, the Toronto police is very, very progressive. I, I've, time and again, I will say they're homin- I mean, they have the only full-time dedicated cold case squad in the country, and they do a remarkable job. They've listened to my advice on numerous occasions. They have new DNA and new leads in a in a very important case. A case is very personal to me as a result of following some investigative guidelines that. I suggested implementing uh, and my team, they're very committed and they, they fulfill those five key points, the five markers of secrets of success of every homicide unit to a T, very progressive. Quebec consistently has the worst clearance rate, followed by usually smaller agencies and the Ontario Provincial Police and then various RCMP detachments, again, in rural areas. This is the opposite of the U.S., strangely. Highest clearance rate, state police. So the opposite of uh, the SQ or the Cerrité de Quebec or the OPP. Second is county sheriffs, believe it or not. And city police rank last in terms of overall efficiency. So we see the opposite in Canada where cities are leading in terms of progressiveness and rural areas and provincial agencies are lagging. Whereas in the U.S., it's the state level agencies that are leading and the cities are really not doing such an exemplary job. And this has a major then impact on recruiting, training, and retention. Talented, university-educated, forward-thinking, tech-savvy investigators who want to make a career of this then don't apply to, say, Baltimore, that cannot find enough applicants right now. They are working, I, I learned this at this last conference I was at, they are working not just detectives, but street cops in 18, 20-hour shifts. Uh, I mean, obligatory overtime they cannot fill cars they cannot uh, they cannot respond to enough calls because no one is applying there they cannot even the the least qualified applicant they they're not getting anymore they're going to the maryland state police why would you work in the city when you can work for the state have all the resources have all the support have those five key points if you want to become a homicide cop that are not going to be provided to you if you work for a city service. And that just comes down to, unfortunately, socioeconomics and the state of the infrastructure in various cities. If you could sit down with Prime Minister Trudeau or with someone that's got a lot of influence, what would you recommend? Uh, we, would need, we would need to create positions that actually were more than just a title and that could affect change and cut through the red tape. And I don't know right now what that would look like. Because I thought that that was the inquiry and that was just a scam. And I hope I'm proven wrong on that. But I think, I mean, people are wise to this now. It's not going to happen. It's certainly not going to happen in any form the way that, uh, not the way people thought it was going to be. So we need some new positions created that actually have some degree of interventive veto power and ability, like in the US. I mean, the Justice Department can find grossly inadequate or finds grossly inadequate police departments or those behaving badly and come in and take them over and staff them with agents who can come in and get them up to speed. I mean, we see corporations function like this. Your franchise, 
is on the rocks and out of control and being assailed with complaints, what do you think head office is going to do? But as an everyday person, how can you push change? Like how could people like, like, like me and my family and my friends and just our listeners, how could they push for change? Again, it starts at the capillary level of power, as one French philosopher once called it, and at the grassroots level. You have to, you have to make people aware that there's a problem first, and then change comes. And sometimes it's not even necessarily being aware there's a problem. You just need to show them a better way. And sometimes that, that means saving money. And maybe it's as simple as that, is things like the murder accountability project like in Canada. I mean, VICAP has its problems. Class in Canada, the stepchild of VICAP in our attempt to, to replicate what they did in the U.S. is uh, is even worse and is costing, is hemorrhaging taxpayer dollars every year for nothing. And if it meant that you could have tax cuts or at the very least develop new police units with the money saved that could serve a better purpose because... Class was being delegated down to the Murder Accountability Project and then HITS actioned out to a task force consisting of academics partnered with police officers. I mean, there's a system right there that if it saves money, I mean, that's that was part of SpaceX's secret and part of Uber's secret is if, if you can show people value added beyond whatever the sort of the ideological, philosophical and moral uh, success is, I mean, that sometimes is enough. And that's, again, time will tell. If, and, and I think that's probably going to be our easiest way into reform is that there are cheaper ways of doing this. Never mind that they're better. They're also cheaper. And which province in Canada do you feel you can most likely partner with to start influencing change or a police department? Is there, is there Because, you know, that would be really important, right, to have... I've, uh, I mean, I spoke as a keynote, as the keynote speaker of the RCMP's 35th anniversary of the Canadian Police College in 2011 about some of this stuff. And there was police leaders there from all over the country, all over the world, actually. Uh, some of them teleconference in from Asia and, and Europe, and uh, they certainly, under that leadership, had a, they were amenable to this stuff. But whether again, it on the ground things can actually change will remain to be seen. I mean, I'm not, I'm not particularly optimistic, quite frankly, which is why I spend more of my time in the U.S. Thanks for listening to Stand Up, Speak Up. You can find show notes at standupspeakupblog.com. We'll see you next time. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.